0: Club Talk Radio.
1: welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, home of the Little League World Series champions for 2019, the East Bank All-Stars, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where the Little Rock Police Department will soon be getting help from, to fight crime from Ring, the Doorbell Security Camera Company. Agencies will be required to limit their requests to specific dates and times, so the request will be part of an investigation of specific crimes, such as a car theft, burglary, or attempt to gain entry to a home. For those of you tuning in to hear the conclusion of our look at the alleged wrongful convictions associated with Edward Wayne Edwards, Michael and I will record a bonus episode and uploaded early next week. Tonight, we'll talk about the post conviction litigation claims made by Larry, Way swearing, Larry Ray Swearingen over the 19 years between his conviction and sentence in 2000 and his execution last week. We'll also talk about the misrepresentations made by Swearingen and his advocates in the media regarding the weight of the forensic evidence that they alleged exonerated him. We're a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is three four seven nine eight nine one one seven one. Good evening, Michael.
0: Good evening, Lisa.
2: I'm sure you're glad to be out of the uh, Edwards. Uh, Whether we were we calling it the Edwards uh, zone? Kinda the like rabbit twilight? hole. Yeah, the rabbit. Yeah. Hole. There we go. We're finally Yeah, well, the rabbit. Man, I tell you, that
1: was, uh, that was uh, interesting uh, Yeah Well, we can we'll finish that on its own And just upload it as a bonus for those Who are interested in the final seven Alleged wrongful conviction cases
2: Right, right I And actually- then we're done I actually was really looking forward to this. This is one of the ones, you know, we've been looking at for quite some time, keeping our eyes on. Uh and you know, obviously the major developments happened last week, uh, with him uh finally being uh executed, et cetera, et cetera. Correct. Which by Correct. the way so we're by the way yes. I notice you I know you keep up with the Innocence Project. Uh, the next day, I uh, once again, interest of full disclosure, I had forgotten that he was scheduled to be executed the day of, and the next day I remembered. So I st- started Googling, and my goodness, the first mm-hmm. thing that pops up is the Innocence Project, and uh, they said the the headline is the state of Texas executes an
0: innocent man.
1: Yeah, correct. And that's, we're going to get into that. So, uh, but in the spirit of full disclosure, as I said in my in my opening, uh, they're misrepresenting the evidence.
2: Well, I mean, yeah, that seems like something, you know, they're pretty good at.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we'll also get into that because uh, some of the most interesting opinions I've ever read have been the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, US District Court and Fifth Circuit Appeals as well as some of the trial court opinions and findings of fact and conclusions of law regarding Larry Swearingen's case. So it's yeah, it's going to be um if 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 Bryce Benjet and James Writing are listening to me, they're not going to like me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can just
1: tell you that right now. So uh, first, let's have a do a little overview of the inculpatory evidence against swearing in, um, because really that is the backdrop against which all of the court opinions have to be Examined and how his case has to be examined by the courts. Uh, Something that, again, Swearingen's trained attorneys don't appear to be aware of. Uh, On the evening of December 7th, two of Swearingen's acquaintances witnessed a phone conversation in which Swearingen arranged for a lunch meeting with a girl at a library the following day. Now, he was supposed to have lunch with Melissa. On the 7th, he had met her on the 6th, but she couldn't meet him for lunch on the 7th, and that kind of ruined his day because coworkers noted that he was in a bad mood for the rest of the day. Um, Three witnesses saw swearing and sitting with Melissa in the Montgomery County Library between 1130 and 130 p.m. on December 8th, 1998. Her biology teacher saw her leave the college library with a mail shortly after one thirty. Now, they've raised an argument that that wasn't swearing in, but they've never presented any evidence that that wasn't swearing in. Um, there, I think going on, a couple of the witnesses thought the guy had light hair and swearing in it had dark hair, but when they – when you look at the full trial testimony the jury knew that the you know that the witnesses couldn't specifically identify swearing it um, one of the biggest things for me is that her car remained in the Montgomery College parking lot following her dis, her disappearance on the, December 8th her parents or her mother found the car there the following morning there were also swearing in statements. Um, He told someone on the 8th that the police were going to be looking for him. Uh, He called it a false burglary report and then tried to say he had been out of town since 11 o'clock on December 7th when his wife came home and found the trailer in disarray. Um, Cigarettes and a lighter were found on the television set, and, and the Swearingans did not smoke. They were the same brand as Melissa's, and they had a, a tax stamp that traced them to a convenience store near the Montgomery County College, or the Montgomery College campus. It gets called Lone Star now, but it was in Montgomery County back in 98.
0: Okay.
1: Then on the 11th, he told – uh, another person that he was in a lot of trouble and the cops were going to be looking for him. And when he saw an off-duty or a deputy in a plane in an unmarked vehicle calling in his license plate, he fled and went on a high-speed chase that ended near his parents' house. And he was arrested on the 11th. Uh, he apparently had traffic warrants. He was on bond for a kidnapping charge. And, frankly, I think that is what led to him killing Melissa because he was already already awaiting trial on a kidnapping of a former girlfriend or former fiancé or ex-wife, and he didn't want more trouble. So the easiest way to do it is to kill her, dump her body, and hope nobody ever finds her. Um he also lied to the police in his statements. Initially, he said he had no idea who Melissa Trotter was when they asked, why, do you ha- why does she have your phone number with the name Larry on a piece of paper in her house? Oh, well, she's a friend of my sister's. And I ran into her, and I gave her my number so she'd get in touch with my sister. And of course, one thing that's good about Larry, he's not a good liar. So it's kind of like a lot like Jody Arias and Dahlia DiPolito. It makes sense to them, but to a normal person, it makes absolutely no sense. And so it stands out as a lie. Um, and so then when that didn't work, uh, when they told him about the people that saw him in the library the day Melissa disappeared, well, then he says, well, yeah, I ran into her at the library. So you see where we're going. As, as new information is <clears throat> kind of provided to Larry, then Larry adds a little bit more to the story. Yeah,
0: yeah he's
2: kind of like Casey in that aspect. His <clears throat> <clears throat> Casey, is, as Casey is another... <throat>
1: Casey is another pathological liar that, yeah. Um, He also, when a visitor visited him in January, he attempted to have her provide him with a false false alibi. And I do not know this, but I suspect that the, the friend looked a lot like Melissa. So he wanted her to say that she was with him on the afternoon of December 8th. And they went to the Texaco near the Montgomery – the McDonald's at the Texaco near the Montgomery College campus so that if anybody or there's any video from that location, he can say it was her and not Melissa because I'm betting wow. that's where Melissa got those chicken nuggets. Um, And then, of course, this, the letter written in Spanish, again, apparently – Larry never took any foreign languages because if he had taken any foreign language, he would know that English does not – is kind of unique in sentence structure and uh, spoken written word structure. And so you cannot literally translate something from English into Spanish.
2: Yeah. I mean that's pretty that's pretty it's
1: the same it's the same English to Spanish, English to German, English to French. The structure the way they structure their grammar structure is totally different. Couldn't explain it to you if I wanted to, but it is. So and you know, the letter, there were parts that didn't make sense. There was information that was dead on, for example, saying Melissa wore red panties and was struck in the left side of her face. But information that wasn't true, such as that she was manually strangled, that um, uh, there were a couple other things that, that, that just we know weren't true based on the forensic evidence. Um, but, you know, the majority of the letter was pretty much a confession. He just wanted to pin it on somebody else. And again, being stupid or not that bright, he sent a letter to his mother and said, mom, mom, look, I got this letter. It's from somebody who knows who the real killer is. Probably thinking mom was going to take it to his attorneys and then it would never see the light of day. Right. Or it would only see the light of day when they wanted it to. But mom got this letter in Spanish, which she can't read. She gave it to her husband. He apparently couldn't translate it, so he took it to the Willis Police Department and got somebody there to translate it.
2: Funny how that works. So,
1: the the exact same the the thing I bet he did not want to happen happened. Um, and then there was uh, you know, there were several. He used his cell phone several times, and through uh, tower data, they were able to. Police were able to either get an idea of a timeline, a general location, or even refute part of his alibi. He claimed he left Melissa at the college. He went to Cavender's boot store, but in addition to having a receipt showing he went there in the morning. They also had a uh a cell phone tower ping that was not anywhere near Cavender's right and then finally, around December the seventeenth, a neighbor of his mother and stepfather found paperwork with Melissa Trotter's name on it, including health insurance forms that her father had given her to fill out and mail out uh, near his parents' house, coincidentally where the chase ended. (laughs) Right. So he likely found those things in his truck and tore them up and tried to get rid of them before the police could seize his truck. Um, and, you know, there's a, they make a lot of the fact that um, some evidence was not found the first time a search was conducted or, uh, you know, it was found after two trash days had gone by. But I know from experience, torn paperwork, if the wind blows right, that's when you notice it. Otherwise, wow. it just, you know, you don't notice it. And I think that's what happened. And it could be that the, the paperwork was in his parents' trash or, his, you know, whatever. And then when the trash came, because our trash men are always losing stuff, especially pieces of paper that get caught in the wind, get caught in the trash can, you know, whatever. So there are a lot of scenarios where that's, it's not implausible as they would make you believe it is. Um, And then finally, uh, the location where Melissa's body was found on January 2nd, 1999, was an area that Swearingen was very familiar with. And in fact, was near where he took another kidnap victim.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Prior to Melissa's murder.
2: He had an M.O., and
1: that's
0: what this was.
1: So... And, um, again, there, there's a lot made of the fact that Melissa's body was not discovered. It took so long to discover her body, find her body. San Houston National Forest was searched over, I think, a couple of weeks. However, San Houston National, National Forest has 163,037 acres. It goes from Huntsville, Conroe, Cleveland, and Richards, Texas.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm guessing it's contiguous. And so there's land in Montgomery, Walker, and San Jacinto counties. It's also intermingled with privately owned timberland and small farms. Now, I did a calculation 163,037 acres comes out to an area of 254 and three-quarter square miles.
2: So basically what you're getting at
1: is it was a lot of freaking land. It was a lot of freaking land, and... The hunters who found her only found her because they were almost right on top of her. Apparently, they had cadaver dogs, but they were 60 feet away. And based on a comment in an article I read, you know, they never got closer than 60 feet to her. Right. So... Um, Swearingen after uh, shortly after Melissa's body was found, uh, he was charged. And during the investigation, uh, they found numerous cross matches of fiber, hairs, and paint between Melissa's body and clothing, and Swearingen's jacket, master bedroom, and truck. Additionally, uh-huh. two of Melissa's hairs, with the antigen roots still present, indicating that they'd been forcibly removed, were found in Swearingen's truck. Right. Swearingen had also used two containers of armorall wipes on the seats of his truck to wipe them down. Um, and You're DNA confirmed stuff. that those DNA confirmed that those hairs in the truck belonged to Melissa. This wasn't wow. a, a visual microscopic fiber match. This was DNA. And I believe, because of the antigen roots were present, uh, it was nuclear DNA. Additionally, they found pantyhose around Melissa's neck and that led to his landlord pointing out a pair of pantyhose with a leg missing that had been tossed out when the landlord was cleaning out the trailer that swearing and his wife had to vacate when he was arrested. Um, pubic hairs on the pantyhose were DNA from swearing his wife and hairs on the, the other, you know, the, Trailer painting hose, let's call them, were right. mitochondrial DNA that did not exclude swearing it.
0: Hmm.
1: So, uh, of course, we talked about in our, our prior episode, we did a prior episode, uh, we talked about the trial. The state has a very strong circumstantial case.
2: I mean, the defense. Circumstantial, they- I would call Rodney Reed circumstantial. This sounds pretty damn non-circumstantial.
1: Well, it, it's all circumstantial because there's nobody who witnessed swearing and killing Melissa. Okay. Or sexually assaulting okay. Melissa. No one who witnessed swearing and driving down the road with Melissa screaming and banging on the glass of his truck. Right. So um, that's that is why it's circumstantial. But it is very strong circumstances. And those circumstances are corroborated by her DNA inside his truck and the numerous cross matches between her and swearing in the environment and on swearing and jacket were fibers from her jacket or sweater that she was wearing when her body was found.
3: Right.
1: So, um, and, you know, then when you put it all together with his consciousness of guilt attempt to Philly, trying to manufacture alibis and alternate suspects and things like that, you get a very strong circumstantial case. His Mm -hmm. attorney's at trial, basically, they vigorously challenged the state's case and what they wanted – what they were trying to do was weaken the sexual assault and kidnapping aggravators that made it a capital murder. But uh-huh. even though Swearingen had not ple- had pled not guilty, there really wasn't a lot that they could do as to the murder. Right. Because he's the last one seen with her. She turns up dead all this, you know, corroboration and circumstantial evidence, you know, you're the one who killed her. Um, yeah. So they, they were just trying to get the sexual assault and kidnapping where a jury would not find either of those elements beyond a reasonable doubt.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that did not work out. And the jury did convict him of capital murder, Um, I think there was some question as to whether uh, they found kidnapping or sexual assault but they only had to find one or the other. Right. And the evidence of sexual assault was at least strong enough to carry. And you know the evidence of kidnapping in his letter he says That when I started talking about sex, she said she had to go home and I, you know, I hit her.
0: Well, then Uh that's
1: kidnapping. If she said if she's in your truck and she says she wants to go home and you don't take her and you make her stay in your trailer, that's kidnapping.
2: Right. Absolutely.
1: Okay. Or you open the door of the trailer and say, fine, bitch, go home you know, then that's fine to let her make her own way home. And he might have had a better shot if he had tried to tell that story. Um, Yeah. So there was a penalty phase and multiple women testified to Swearingen's prior uh, abuse, the criminal charges he was facing. He He had been convicted of burglary. He'd also been convicted of shooting at and then kidnapping his Wife at knife point, right. and sexually assaulting her at a remote wife? location in woods off Airport Road. This um A female. T- still no, no, no. That was um, that was his first wife.
0: Oh, okay.
1: His first wife became pregnant, and they got married, mm-hmm. and he was abusive, and. Uh, as uh, Mr. Blackburn and a couple other prosecutors remarked, when Larry didn't get his way, that's when Larry got violent. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, he had 1993, a female neighbor testified that he broke into her house, went through her lingerie, and cut the legs off a pair of pantyhose. In 94, (laughs) he tied up, gagged, and sexually assaulted a young female after Forcing her to don pantyhose with the crotch cut out. In 97, he choked his nine month pregnant wife nearly to the point of unconsciousness because of an accusation of infidelity. Mm-hmm. In August of 98, he handcuffed, choked with his hands, and sexually assaulted his former fiance. And that was what he was awaiting charges on, I believe. Right. And then in 1998 in September, he abducted his former fiance at gunpoint, forced her to drive to a remote dirt road in San Houston National Forest before releasing her. So right. it was either the August 98 or the September 98, he was awaiting trial on charges and out on bond. Or he was under right. indictment awaiting trial. And like I said, I believe – that's why he killed Melissa. Okay. So, um, after that, they sentenced him to death because that's, you know, evidence of future dangerousness and an inability to conform his conduct. And oh. um, he went to death row in Texas. Uh, that was Uh, Another misrepresentation made in a couple of, quote, news magazine shows is that he was convicted and sentenced to death all within three hours. He was Uh convicted on June – let's see. um, He was convicted in June of 1998, and then he was – Sentenced on July 11th of 1998, so there it was no three hours. Right. Uh, he was convicted June 28th. The punishment punishment phase actually started on the 6th of July, and the jury deliberated and rendered a verdict on July 11th, 2000. Uh, mm-hmm. He had a new new attorney appointed to represent him and they pursued his direct appeal.
0: Right.
1: Um, The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which reviews any death sentence case, um, they affirmed his conviction and sentence. Two judges dissented. Basically, both of them had doubts about the strength of the evidence on sexual assault and kidnapping
0: Uh
1: so um, but that was I think one of them even said I don't agree with it I don't think the court used the right um, the right case to evaluate it evaluate the evidence but I would ultimately affirm the conviction Um, And then in 2002, he filed a state uh, habeas corpus in Texas. It's called habeas corpus, uh, post-conviction writ, and that was based on entomological evidence, bug evidence, that could be used to determine the post-mortem interval for Melissa Trotter. Right. Um, I think he also alleged ineffective assistance of counsel. That writ was denied by the trial court in March of 2002.
2: Well, come on now, Lisa. That's kind of like the greatest. I sense mean, conviction. If if you lost, it was obviously because of the lawyer, not because you were guilty.
1: Right. Uh, well, yeah, we're going to get to that because that's uh, <laughs> that's one of the arguments, but later arguments are directed at the justice system. So um, – no, that was 2003,
0: uh-huh.
1: and they basically uh, – that the state trial court denied the writ. In May of 2003, the TCCA adopted the state court findings and ad- denied the writ. Um, Swearingen filed his first post-conviction request for DNA testing in 2005, which was also denied. In the meantime, he filed and requested appointment of counsel in 2003, and I believe that his current attorney, James Writing and Hilder and & Associates were the ones appointed in 2003. This is important. They have represented him in his federal habeas and subsequent state habeas claims since 2003. It'll come okay. into play later. That's why, see, I sent you the timeline to give you the test. Okay. <laughs> um, And uh, he did not – when his direct appeal was denied, he also did not file a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court. So his direct appeal, uh, his conviction and sentence became final in 2003, 90 days after March 26, 2003, so about June of 2003.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, you know, can't stress this enough. Once you've been convicted and sentenced and your direct appeal, your conviction and sentence are affirmed, and you either don't petition the U.S. Supreme Court or you petition and they deny the writ, they don't want to hear the case. Your conviction becomes final, and the burden of proof, if you claim you didn't do it, shifts to you. Right. Um. And and that is that is something lay people just don't get because I was taken to task on Twitter by someone.
3: Oh God! Love because Twitter they
1: said. People. The state has to prove guilt, and his guilt isn't proven. He was proven at trial, the soft, it was. So – and it, once your conviction becomes final, if you say you're actually innocent, the burden shifts to you. And that's one of the issues that I have with people saying, West Memphis Three, Rodney Reed, Stephen Avery, the state hasn't proven them guilty because I don't accept the evidence the state used. Right. Well, you know what they say about opinions? Yeah. They're like...
0: They do.
2: They are... uh, An
1: orifice of your body, and everybody has one. (laughs)
2: Yeah, they're in abundance. Kind of like these Twitter...
1: um, Yeah, so kind of like the Twitter people. Oh well, there are there are equally. I've been taken to task on Facebook for that as well, on that's several funny. cases. Um,
2: social media in general. But, uh, there's a lot of social justice <laughs> warriors.
1: Yeah, exactly, and that's fine. That's all well and good, but educate yourself so that you know what you're talking about.
3: Right.
0: Right.
1: And you know i'm I may be a little elitist, but mm-hmm. I know what I'm talking about. Right. And I've done the research for we, years. I mean, uh, I started doing this. Mm-hmm. I, I started hanging out in my mom's office reading law books and looking for state verses and reading criminal cases. Mhm. So, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. Anyway, so, okay, so we're in 2004. He files uh, the Pro-Se-DNA testing, and he files his first federal writ raising the claims regarding entomological evidence and new claims regarding ineffective assistance counsel. Basically, His attorney should have known how important this was and I think there was also accusations that the state withheld this evidence and presented false testimony about it. No. So, um, yeah. And uh, the he also one of the other problems with, with Larry swearing in Is he filed? He apparently took a paralegal course that he got his grandmother to pay for, and then he started filing these pro se motions and writs and lawsuits, and it it was crazy. And Mm -hmm. I didn't even go. I didn't even go through. I went through one or two of them, like. He sued President Obama.
0: Oh, of course he did.
1: Okay. Blame Obama. <laughs> but um, so the uh, pro se writ of mandamus that he had filed at the TCCA was denied in 2005. Federal court denied relief on his first federal writ uh, and dismissed it with prejudice. Mm-hmm. The only. Certificate of appealability that the district court granted was on an insufficiency of the evidence claim, and basically the federal court found that Swearingen had failed to pr- to prove that he was entitled to federal habeas relief on his claims. Um, there was also yeah. a little question as to the whether he had raised all of the claims in state court. In his first writ, because you have to let the state court resolve the issues or attempt to resolve the issues before a federal court's going to step in and decide whether they did it right or not.
2: Right. That's kind of a Um, command type deal.
1: Well, it's it's more to do with um, jurisdiction and especially after uh, EDPA, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: where basically you get one bite at the federal habeas apple. And most state post-conviction statutes are essentially the same. In other words, you need to investigate all of your claims, investigate every problem that occurred in your trial, and present it all in one, all at one time, all in one thing. Uh, as we've seen with Swearingen and a couple of other cases, that almost never happens. Right. Or very rarely happens. Because yeah. there's always discovery of, quote, new evidence. Right. um, So... We go to 2006, and uh, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals dismisses the appeal of denial of DNA testing from state court because the notice of appeal was not filed timely. Uh, It should have been filed 30 days from the date of the order dismissing the request for DNA testing. But instead, it wasn't filed until 30 days after a request for reconsideration, but under the procedure in Texas, and I've seen that in other cases in Louisiana, a motion for rehearing or reconsideration does not interrupt the time to file certain notice of appeal  … … in certain proceedings in certain circumstances, and that was right. the circumstance in this case. Um, the, he s- requested a writ with the U.S. Supreme Court on that issue, and that was denied. The Fifth Circuit affi- well, then, affirmed the denial of federal habeas relief
0: all in 2006.
2: Real quick, and correct me if I'm wrong, one thing I have noticed that people argue about, and I've noticed Brad says this a lot. uh, He says, you know, if somebody's life is on the line, you should kind of bend the rules a little bit. And, you know, as far as timelines and stuff like that, you know, those shouldn't matter because somebody's life is on the line. And I can kind of see his point, but, I mean, it's one of those things. Isn't that kind of like opening Pandora's box? If they loosen the rules on this, couldn't somebody come back and say, well, you'll Correct. loosen the rules for me and loosen the rules for and
1: me? You'll, right, and, and the other thing, if you allow death penalty cases to have essentially no rules, people sentenced to prison sentences or life sentences, life without parole, are going to have an equal protection argument. Mhm. That they're being uh, discriminated against or not treated the same way because they are not sentenced to death. Right. Um, and I think it's it's almost a courts are almost a microcosm of society. We have to have rules.
2: Right. Absolutely. And
1: the rules have to be followed. And absolutely. You know, mistakes happen. I, I know of a, a law firm in New Orleans that took a humongous hit many years ago because they did not properly calculate the time for filing an appeal. Mm-hmm. They lost a big case. They, uh, it was a case in which the plaintiff would be entitled to triple damages. So it was a really, really big case, and they miscalculated the notice of appeal date by a couple of three days, and we saw oh, it in, in Roger Coleman.
2: 72 hours.
1: hmm
2: It'll get you all the time. And
1: now in some circumstances as well, and it, it didn't necessarily happen in Swearingen's case, but – It has happened in some cases uh, where, for example, in a criminal case where the defense attorney loses the trial and disappears and doesn't do anything, doesn't seek to withdraw, doesn't tell the, the client, I'm not representing you anymore, find another attorney, and just goes into the wind a court will allow a late filed appeal, right, and there's a case from the u s Supreme Court that basically, if an attorney abandons his client, then the courts will you know make allowances so that the client can pursue his due process uh, in a you know even though it wasn't done on time.
2: Right, right, right. And that makes sense. Hey, if the dude just disappears and ghosts them, yeah, you should right. probably you know, make sure that and they at least get a chance, because it's not like they can file it for right. themselves.
1: What, What you also have to keep in mind when we're talking about post-conviction claims, we're talking about collateral challenges to the conviction and sentence. Right. We're not talking about the direct appeal, mm-hmm. and it's not the same. People call it, quote, appeals, but it's not really a an appeal. Mm-hmm. It's a collateral action challenging basically the constitutionality and the procedure that led to the conviction and or sentence. Right. So, these are not, um, you know, your first habeas, first state post-conviction, those are more or less of right within whatever confines of the statute Mm -hmm. in the state may be. But after that, they're discretionary, and you Mm -hmm. bear the burden of showing the court that makes a decision that you meet the requirements of the statute to pursue another post-conviction claim. Right. That you you know do have new evidence that you couldn't have discovered with due diligence and that you couldn't have raised the issue in a prior habeas proceeding because it's based on a new law from the US Supreme Court that applies rec- retroactively. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he has defense attorneys. He has attorneys representing him being paid either by the federal court or Montgomery County Court. And that's another another misrepresentation that Larry Swearingen made in a couple of interviews that the attorneys – he made it sound like the attorneys were representing him pro bono. Mm -hmm. Bryce Benjet from Innocence Project – maybe representing him pro, pro bono because that's what they do, but they they are a, quote, non-profit who take donations to do the work that they do. Right. And so they're getting money from donors so that they can pay salaries and employ people to do what they're doing. But James Writing's firm – throughout the course of the litigation in Montgomery County has been paid by Mm -hmm. Montgomery County for every post-conviction writ, every DNA testing, every, uh, everything that they've done, they have been paid. Right. So, um, you know, they're not, they're not doing this for free. And they're listed on the federal dockets as retained. Not appointed. Although writing initially became involved because he was appointed. Mm-hmm. Or at least his firm was appointed. Right. So, um, so uh, in 2006, another thing, and I I had so much stuff, I didn't list all of it on the outline. Okay. Um, uh, swearing and fraud filed a post se motion to have counsel appointed to represent him in a successive writ attacking state DNA proceedings
0: mm-hmm. that was
1: denied due to the federal procedural bar that resulted from his default of direct review by state court when he filed a late notice of appeal um, and rehearing on that issue was denied uh, in May. He filed that or that was denied in February and swearing and filed a request for rehearing. It was denied in May. Okay. And then um He also filed another pro se motion for appointment of counsel to pursue a successive writ to challenge evidence of capital murder. Um, this, is, this is an example of piecemeal litigation. Swearingen files a pro se motion for one issue. That gets denied. He files another pro se motion for another issue, and that is also denied. Right. And in July, uh, the 5th, pardon?
2: Instead of throwing everything at once, he's, you know, taking his time.
1: Correct. Because taking it, doing it piecemeal buys time. Right. Um, And the finding on that motion, the pro se motion for appointment of counsel, was that he failed to demonstrate the merit. For a successive writ um, and then in July the Fifth Circuit affirmed denial of habeas relief by the US District Court finding that swearing and couldn't show that the evidence was insufficient to support a finding that Melissa was kidnapped and/or sexually assaulted and um, mentioned in briefing, that swearing and intended to file an actual innocence claim and that was when the the Fifth Circuit warned his attorneys if you're gonna file something, file it. Because delaying could, you know, subject you to sanctions. Right. Uh, Otherwise
2: basically stop wasting our damn time.
1: Right. Once the Fifth Circuit denied uh a firm denial of habeas relief in federal court, all the state court proceedings had been dismissed or denied. Uh, the first execution date was set on October seventeenth, two 2006. Mm-hmm. The date of execution was January twenty fourth, 2007. Guess what happens on January 22nd?
2: They, they file an appeal.
1: Swearing and file, or Swearing as attorneys file a second state writ.
2: Okay.
1: Alleging multiple claims, Brady violations regarding the entomological evidence, um, alleging that the opposition from the Montgomery County district attorney to release of evidence to experts retained by swearing in was Brady violation. Um, you, they, I got to give it to Bryce Benjet and James writing. They were creative up until what? the last minute. They really were. Um, so uh the there were a lot of claims, six of them were remanded to the trial court to be developed. Because at least on those six claims there was a showing that they may have had merit. Mm hmm. Um and that's also one of the things, I mean, you, if you file a, a nonsensical uh, motion for a successive state writ, it's going to be denied because you have to at least show that the claims may have merit. And another confusion with laypeople is that if the TCCA remands something to the trial court, then it's got to be true and it's got to be good. And it's got to have, you know, it's got to absolutely have merit. But they're remanding it because it might have merit. And the burden is on the applicant to demonstrate the merit and present evidence that proves the allegations of the claims. Right. so that was in two thousand seven. the execution date of course, had to be stayed mm-hmm. um, also, in the interim a an application for a writ to the u s Supreme Court on the denial of re- first habeas release was denied by the Supreme Court, so they didn't review in fact none of none of swearingen's applications to the U.S. Supreme Court, were granted. Mm Mm-hmm. And at uh, the trial court held evidentiary hearings on the successive state writ, and three experts testified on behalf of swearing-in.
3: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: After the hearings and the analysis of the, the testimony... The state court essentially found that there were no Brady violations that the entomological evidence that Swearingen was complaining about was not in the district attorney's custody after trial it was in the custody of the Montgomery County court and that the district attorney's opposition to request to release that evidence would not be Brady violations mm-hmm. um the court found that swearing and failed to show that the evidence was material to his conviction and that the evidence regarding the there was kind of in inconsistent decomposition on Melissa's body some areas mm-hmm. were uh were significant decomposition was observed noted in the autopsy report and there were other areas where it was moderate um there were there were other areas where it wasn't what you would expect after 25 days there were certain organs that were able to be sectioned and things like that although that doesn't come in at this point but it comes in later but the court basically found, and based on the testimony of Swearingen's witnesses, that the inconsistent levels of decomposition were explained by the cool temperatures and the general unpredictability of those experts' colonation data on the entom- entomological evidence. Right. Um, and they also found that trial counsel weren't, effecti- weren't ineffective for not pursuing entomological evidence,
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially in light of the fact that their defense expert medical examiner concurred with the state or the Harris County medical examiner's opinion regarding the postmortem interval. Um, they also found that there was no prejudice for the attorney's failure to develop the entomological evidence.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and like I said, a lot of this is based on the testimony by the swearing swearingen's experts. Okay. So um, bottom line, the the trial court in the findings of fact, ...found that the evidence presented by Swearingen as to the entomological evidence was not clear and convincing evidence of actual innocence. Right. Uh, in, G- in January of 2008, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals adopted the trial judge's findings on the success of writ, and so that ended... The first successive writ. Hmm.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Not one to stop, Flanagan's <laughs> counsel filed a second, subsequent state habeas writ. Um, this time, they were challenging. Uh, they were alleging Brady violations for failure to note to provide information. About an ultimate suspect named Robbie Grove. And, uh, again, multiple claims. Only two were remanded to the trial court. Right. And once again – well, no, actually there wasn't. Um, No, never mind. Uh, That's a mistake in my notes. Uh, So that was remanded, two claims, more hearings. And again, um, some of the prior experts had more definitive opinions than those they had given at the prior hearing. New experts were, were brought in who had even stronger opinions. And um, interestingly, the hearings were conducted in 2008. In 2007, Swearingen's counsel had obtained an affidavit from the prior medical examiner, but they didn't use that in support of this second writ. Right. So, and that just popped out to me <laughs> when I'm looking at it. Um, <laughs> so this was again entomological evidence, and um, trying to refine the entomological evidence. What they're trying to do is they're trying to narrow the postmortem interval from 25 days to a period. After beginning after December 11th, when Swearing was in prison, was in jail mm-hmm. um, again after the hearings in July of 2008, the second subsequent writ was denied. Um, the court found that the alternate suspect had been investigated and cleared, that uh, in fact. DNA testing had been done that had excluded him, and that was discussed at trial before the jury. Uh, Once again, the court found no Brady violations and also found that the claims were not new, that they could have been raised in the first writ because they dealt with things that happened at trial. And there was an interesting comment, and I don't know if it's in this one or the next one, where the court said that something along the lines of uh, the applicant's counsel is criticizing trial counsel for not developing this evidence, not knowing the importance of this evidence, not using this evidence, and yet they didn't do it until just now.
0: Right. So, that, uh,
2: um, that's dangerous, as far as that goes.
1: Yeah. And they also had uh, another witness that they had was a girl. Uh, her first name is Lisa, initial R. I'm not going to say her full name. Um, she had apparently reached out to Swearingen's counsel. She knew Swearingen, which is the first red flag for me. And um, she knew that Swearingen and Melissa were dating. Well, nothing prior to trial, during trial, or even since trial, uh, confirmed Swearingen's claims that he had been dating Melissa for any length of time. They met on the 6th. He gave her his number. Now he was dating her because that would explain her hairs in his truck.
2: That would explain...
1: Fibers from his truck, clothing, carpet on her clothing.
2: At least Rodney freaking has always said that they were dating. Good Lord.
1: No. No, he did not raise the consensual relationship until a bond hearing.
2: Oh, my mistake.
1: When he was initially interviewed by police, he said, don't know Stacy, never saw her, never heard of her, only know what I saw on the news.
2: Oh, you're right. Yeah, I remember that now.
1: And then at the bond hearing, he claimed he had a relationship, and at trial they claimed he had a relationship.
0: Right. Anyway, let's right. not go down
1: that rabbit hole tonight. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Um, and uh, essentially the court found that Roberts was not credible – oops, excuse me, Lisa was not credible – and um that she was not known to investigators or the district attorney so there was no Brady violation and and again he you know swearing and failed to prove that any of that was material to his conviction mhm um in october of 2008 the trial court denied a request for recusal basically because you Basically, the grounds, I think, where you, you were the trial judge, you found against me, you have a bias against me, you have to recuse. Okay. And the trial judge re- you know, denied that, and I don't believe it was ever even pursued. Oh, yes, it was. It was pursued in the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal, found that there were no grounds uh, to recuse.
3: Okay.
1: So, um, and so once that was done, the findings of fact by the trial court were adopted by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals uh, in 2008. The state filed a motion and the court set a new execution date for January twenty seventh, 2009, which was the second execution date.
0: hmm
1: On January 6, a post-conviction request for DNA testing was filed. I think it's like the third... A second... Nope, a third pro se motion for DNA testing.
0: Uh Uh-huh.
1: And I'm looking, uh, swearing, and also sought a uh, permission to file a second federal habeas petition and a stay of execution from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, which was granted – and um, so the Fifth Circuit allowed a federal, second federal writ. And it was here that they raised claims regarding testimony of the Harris County Medical Examiner and claims related to the trial attorney's failure. To adequately cross examine Dr. Carter and develop the histological evidence, which is basically examination of tissue to determine disease condition. Um, The Fifth Circuit limited the second writ to those issues, and um, this is where. They rejected the actual innocence, alternate suspect, and Brady claims related to entomological evidence, and this is where they said the late filing of this motion demonstrates disrespect to this court. Counsel are ordered to show cause why the petition could not have been filed before January twentieth, two 2009, because his, his execution date is the 27th. And they filed this request on the 20th.
0: Um,
1: On the 27th, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal uh, dismissed a motion, pro se, motion to abate appeal and request for a stay of execution filed by swearing in and also dismissed uh, an application for writ of habeas habeas corpus on a single claim, again, filed pro se by swearing in. Uh, and we're only up to 2009 here, people. I mean, if there's any doubt about due process in the justice system. Right. He's filed claims at the last minute and gotten two stays of execution.
0: Yeah, like I he's, said,
2: it's one of those things. You he's know.
1: repackaged claims that were previously not successful.
0: Mhm.
1: And gotten stays of execution.
3: Yeah.
1: So, this is all um, Luckily, he was able to go back to federal court because Texas state court uh, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal dismissed the pro se and the the uh fifth, the fourth writ, which was pro se, fifth writ, which was filed by the attorneys. hmm That's another problem that he's. That's another problem that he's creating for his attorneys. He's filing these pro se things, and that's just counting up on the number of writs that he's filed. And um, on this particular instance, a concurring opinion was filed by Justice Cochran on the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, and it says applicant files last-minute but facially appealing claims of actual innocence. This is an instance of focusing solely on a couple of twigs of apparently exculpatory evidence instead of the veritable forest of inculpatory evidence. And in uh, analyzing the evidence, the histological evidence, and the claims regarding Dr. Carter's testimony and Strickland violations, um, Judge Cochran remarked that the hallmark of a scientifically sound hypothesis is that it is consistent with and accounts for the known facts.
3: Right
1: um, and that's something that um, that's been that's always been a big problem for me with these claims is because swearingen's counsel is relying solely even up to right before his execution on histological evidence that his their experts shrink the postmortem interval to two or three days. Right. And they start acting as though Melissa Trotter's body showed absolutely no evidence of decomposition when it was found on January second.
2: Hey, Lisa. Which I could not questions. be
1: farther from the truth. Yeah.
2: Lisa, I got a question real quick, cause I, and he didn't give me any, uh, he didn't give me any context of who wrote it, but Brad just sent me this, and th- that's what I was kind of reading here. Uh, he, it says Larry Ray Swearingen was sentenced to death in July of 2000 for the 19898 abduction, sexual assault, and murder of Melissa Trotter, a 19 year old college student from Montgomery, Texas. DNA testing excluded Swearingen as the perpetrator. And forensic science provides an airtight alibi. Jim was in county jail on outstanding traffic warrants at the time. I'm not even going to finish that. Oh, holy shit. That's, that's the a-
1: misrepresentation I'm talking about. The forensic evidence that that's his attorneys refer to, fact. the forensic evidence his attorneys refer to is experts' examination of some tissues that had been sectioned and maintained by the Harris County Medical Examiner's Office. Uh, one of the things, and, and it kind of comes up later, one of the things is that in an autopsy, when they're taking tissue samples, they're taking the samples for the purpose of testing for drugs or other toxins. So when you have a decomposed, decomposing body, Right. You take samples of organs in the best shape
0: mm-hmm.
1: to preserve for that type of testing. You can't perform drug testing or to- a test for toxins on an organ that's been liquefied through the process right. of dis- decomposition. And, and
2: my- another exactly. problem,
1: another problem, wait a second, because this ex- ex- addresses exactly what I'm talking about. They rely okay. on this histological evidence. They reduce the post-mortem interval to a few days, two, three days, four days, five days.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: that does not explain where was Melissa from December 8th until December 26th.
2: Right. And literally, they didn't even Why get wasn't? that. Back-
1: Why wasn't there any trace evidence from this other environment, other person, other vehicles, other places where Melissa allegedly was? Why did her clothing not look like it had been worn by a live body? Mm -hmm. Because she was wearing the same clothing with a note in the pocket that she was given on the morning of December 8th. Right. Um, where was she why was there remnants of chicken and potato substance in her stomach which is the last meal she ate in the stomach you know she died probably within two hours of eating because food starts to break down after two hours and I think it's completely gone after about four So looking at that histological evidence, and they ignored, like I said, they ignored the significant decomposition on some parts of Melissa's body and in some areas of her body and ignored moderate decomposition in other areas. The environment she was in was cold. It was damp. Uh Um, that's another thing too they misrepresent the temperature data they say this is south Texas it gets in the 70s even in December well in December of 1998 between December 8th and January 2nd the temperature at Conroe Airport which was some distance south I think 19 or 20 miles south of Sam Houston National Forest, so it would be somewhat warmer there than it would be in the forest. Uh Uh-huh. During that period of time, the temperature was at 25 degrees or higher for 592 hours. The temperature was at 30 degrees or higher for 581 hours. The temperature was only at 70 degrees or higher for 44 hours. That's less than two days. I think there was, and when Melissa disappeared, the temperature was actually down in the 30s.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And the temperature was in the 30s with highs only up into the 60s on a few days until December 20th. And at night, the temperature went down to 34, 32, 35, 35. There was a there was a period there where the temperatures were in the 30s for the entire week. Right. So, and again, that's at that's at the Conroe Airport, which is going to be warmer than the forest, the thick canopy of tree. They also make it sound like she was laying out in a field, you know, out in an open field. She was under some bushes in the National Forest. So,
2: okay.
1: You know, I think it's just, you know, it, it, it's really, honestly, to me, a lot of it seems like an exercise in creative writing.
2: They're definitely playing with the facts very, uh, very loose.
1: Mhm. Yeah, they I mean they did and they continued to do it. They continued to do it up until the day Swearingen was executed. Right. Um and like I said that it, you know focusing on a couple of twigs of exculpatory or seemingly exculpatory evidence and ignoring the veritable forest of inculpatory evidence. Mhm. Uh-huh. Uh so um it it just like I said and it, it and it constantly evolved. Um the the entomological evidence didn't work, so they went to the histological evidence and then they stamped their feet and they present it multiple ways. They have experts that give a a statement, a declaration and then trial testimony and um, You know, they even tr- go to the medical examiner from Harris County, who's no longer in Harris County, and they send her an affidavit. The attorney sent her an affidavit in 2007. They don't raise this in 2007. They wait and raise it in 2009 when he's got another execution date. Uh-huh. And they – the attorney prepares the affidavit. Sends it to her. She reviews it. She contacts him. She talks to him. And I think she's, you know, got a couple things that she wants him to change. But it doesn't retract her testimony. It doesn't really necessarily even disagree with her testimony because all she gave was an estimate. Melissa had been dead about 25 days when her body was found or the condition that she observed on the external co- decomposition was consistent with her death occurring around December 8th. Um, it's not an exact science. It's a range, and it's always a range. And any medical examiner, and it's funny, they criticize Prosecution med- medical examiners for allegedly giving these precise times of death, and yet they'll bring a medical examiner who'll say they died at this time exactly. Right. You know, no doubt, no doubt about it, to to a degree of scientific certainty. And uh, but they'll criticize the the original medical examiner. And called that original medical examiner's testimony false and misleading. Right. Um, So in November of 2009, the federal district court dismissed the successive federal habeas petition, finding that Swearingen didn't meet the requirements for filing a successive petition. Uh, The court noted in the factual review of the record, and that's, uh, this is, um, I'm kind of falling off topic again, but (laughs) something else that lay people don't get, they think that when the defense presents their evidence, their witnesses, their testimony, their affidavits, that a court is bound to accept those as true and proving that the person is actually innocent or entitled to a new trial or whatever release that they seek. In reality, the courts look at what they present, not in a vacuum, in and of itself, but against that evidence against the the existing evidence or the pre-existing evidence. So if you present this, if they present this evidence at a hearing and the judge finds none of the witnesses to be credible, finds some of the witnesses to be biased and discounts their opinions … and testimony, then the original trial evidence remains good. And although the attorneys continue to say we've, we've disproven the state's entire case has fallen apart, not really. It, it hasn't – the case has not fallen apart until a judge writes a findings of fact and conclusions of law that says… The state's entire case after this hearing has fallen apart. And I remember, you know, uh, I think it was Sean. um, Basically, you know, he thought if you get a hearing and the court finds against you, then the process had to be unfair.
0: Lord Jesus. Yeah, because like it Sean
1: it's right. only fair if you win.
2: Yeah, it sounds about like something Sean would say.
1: <laughs> but um the court so in reviewing the evidence established at trial found that on uh Dr. Carter's internal examination she found the pancreas autolized, adrenal glands autolized, kidneys and brain showing Uh, significant decomposition, uh, that the date of death was only a tangential or inferential issue at trial, that Melissa's body was in a state of moderate decomposition, body tissue had begun to break down and change color and become soft and liquid, that tissue had begun to break down and there was a lot of damage and decompositional change to the front of malicious body, including darkening the facial skin, stomach discoloration, fungal organisms between layers of skin tissue, um, fungal growth promoted by the dark and wet conditions. Uh, The fungal growth also took several weeks' time. Later, someone will criticize Dr. Carter for not identifying the specific fungus. But you know, whatever floats his boat, um, and then also the the stomach contents. Again, later, <laughs> one of um, one of Swearingen's experts will say it wasn't chicken, it was beef, but it wasn't ground beef because he's got to eliminate not only Chicken McNuggets, but a Big Mac. But
2: hamburger as well, yeah.
1: Right, hamburger... Oh. Big Mac or Quarter Pounder.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, So, um, you know, I mean, basically, the the U.S. District Court found that what Swearingen's experts and what Swearingen's counsel portrayed were not even close to the actual trial record. And, again, you know, they're focusing on the histological findings and ignoring all this other stuff. And as time goes on, Melissa's body will be in better and better condition uh, with every telling of the tale. So uh, the second state petition was denied. And... um, Though it's a it's a long opinion, it's very interesting reading. Uh, but the court concluded by saying that uh, the Melissa had been dead only two to three days is not a credible hypothesis for a reasonable jury considering all the evidence. Uh, the court also did not find Swergen's evidence was so compelling that a court could not have confidence in the outcome of his trial. Right. Uh, also, in 2010, uh, in February, there was a denial of DNA testing, and the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed that. Uh, basically, found that Swearingen had not met the the requirements of Chapter 64, which is the DNA testing statute. Um, you have to show there are four or five elements or requirements and you have to prove each of those elements exists. If you answer no to any element, you're not entitled to testing. Mm-hmm. So swearing and fail to prove that the evidence contained biological material, uh, the Court of Criminal Appeals found that the attorney's conclusory statements were not sufficient to meet that requirement. Um, There was prior testing done on the left and right-hand nail scrapings, and that's another interesting thing. That's the DNA that supposedly excludes swearing in. What happened is that samples or, or scrapings were taken from Melissa's right hand and left hand. They were examined in January. They were tested and no DNA was found. They were described in one hand was black flaky substance. And in the other hand was the black flaky substance and what appeared to be sand. Then a later examination at DPS on one of the collection sticks under the microscope they observed bright red flecks of blood minuscule amount I think they described it as the size of a pencil point and this is under the microscope it's not like they took it out and it's bright red visible to the naked eye this is had uh-huh. to be under a microscope to even observe it and was not observed in the initial examination at DPS in January. They were able to test those blood the blood. They were able to develop a full DNA profile from it and it did belong to a male. They submitted to CODIS and didn't get any hits. That was at trial. The jury knew about that. If the jury knows about something like that and they convict you anyway, it's not significant evidence. And to keep bringing it up and bringing it up like it means something is, you know, a wasted effort because. But they also, they misrepresent it and they misrepresent the, at trial, there was some testimony that the appearance of the the blood was too fresh to be from Melissa or to have been deposited at the time she died. Uh-huh. So the result, it was probably the result of, Contamination at some point after the fingernail scrapings were collected. Like I said, if it's, it's, the fingernail scrapings were examined initially under the microscope and that it wasn't observed, then it was a result of contamination prior to the second examination. Um, there was no theory about blood I mean well it's possible that somebody had a cut somewhere and they were you know they the evidence was exposed and the blood was blown onto the evidence I don't know there was no theory that somebody standing at the crime scene with a cut And the blood blew off of them and under Melissa's fingernails. And that's another thing, too, is that swearing in and the, the attorneys tend to use these fantastical statements and representing those as being the state's case when in reality, I think there were several possibilities discussed as to how contamination might have occurred. Uh-huh. And more likely than not, most of those probably occurred during cross examination. Right. Um, but no, that was likely contamination sometime after the fingernail scrapings were collected from Melissa, either prior to being sent to the to the DPS lab, or after they had arrived at the DPS lab. And, you know, all we know is that it was a male. Okay. So um, they also found that um, Swearingen had failed to show that then-existing technology was inadequate. Um, there was also an issue regarding a uh, an unknown pubic hair, which I think was the only unknown evidence uh, foreign to Melissa that was not otherwise identified. It had been sent to the FBI for testing, but the FBI could not locate it, so it no longer existed. And that was another requirement is you have to be able to um, show that a chain of custody can be developed from the evidence uh-huh. you want to test. So if something has been stolen from an alternate suspect and given to a defendant's attorney, and the, defendant, the defendant's attorney holds on to it for a few years, and then sends it somewhere for DNA testing, you really don't have a chain of custody.
3: True.
1: So, um, and finally, the the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals found that the request for DNA testing was filed to unreasonably delay the execution of sentence because it was filed 21 days before Swearingen's execution was scheduled to take place.
0: Uh mm-hmm. huh.
1: And do you want to take a break now because it's 10 o'clock?
2: Well, I mean, we can take a break. I know we are only scheduled till 1030. So, I mean, if you want to power through it or... Uh, okay,
1: we'll power, we'll power through. We'll power through. I was
2: about to say, I just don't know if we're going to be able to get through this. We may have to extend to next week.
1: No, I think we'll... Um, I think we're... I think listeners are starting to get the the gist. Um, oh, yes. We're into 2011. Mm-hmm. Swearing has had multiple reviews in state court. He's filed two federal habeas corpus writs. Uh, he's had review fight by U.S. District Court. The Fifth Circuit in April of 2011 affirmed the denial of the successive habeas position, petition for most of the reasons that the uh, district court found, that uh, the evidence presented by swearing in who bore the burden of proof, did not constitute clear and convincing evidence that, but for constitutional error, no reasonable fact finder would have found him guilty of the underlying offense. Mm-hmm. Um, the Fifth Circuit also found that Swearingen's trial count, counsel had a reasonable strategy, including expert testimony regarding time of death. In uh, 2011, um, Swearingen filed a pro se federal suit or federal claim in court so federal court against President Barack Obama, Attorney General Eric Holder, Texas Attorney General Greg Abbott, and Warden Rick Thaler. Um, Basically, he was claiming that federal habeas, uh, the, the statute governing successive petitions was a violated due process, the Sixth and Eighth Amendments, the suspension clause, the separation of powers doctrine, and that the uh, – another clause in that statute violated the court's power under the Eighth Amendment to consider actual innocence. He was requesting declaratory judgment, an injunction preventing future execution, and payment of attorney's fees. Uh, The court basically dismissed the claim because even though he called it a civil rights claim, it was really just another attack on his conviction. Um, There were no claims regarding the conditions of his confinement. The allegations arose not from how he was confined, but why, and that the court – entertaining any examination in the case would drag the litigation into the core of habeas and force the court to consider the merits of claims the Fifth Circuit has barred from habeas review. Mm -hmm. Um, The court also found that the arguments that were directed toward uh, EDPA should have been Included in an action where the court could apply it, but and that would be the Fifth Circuit, which is the gatekeeper for a third round of habeas review. So all of Swearingen's pending motions were denied. Request for injunction was denied. There were no merit to any of the claims under civil rights law. All of his arguments were frivolous, and the court denied a certificate of appealability. On June 24,
2: Hello, 2011, news. uh-oh. Breaking news, he files a frivolous lawsuit.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: um,
1: <laughs> uh, the swearing-in third execution date was set for August eighteenth, 2011. On July eleventh, 2011, a seventh state habeas corpus claim Request is filed, and the te- Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, in spite of swearing Swearingen's history, and in, f- in spite of the fact that the prior six claims had no merit whatsoever, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals stayed the execution, and remanded those the pro se six and the. Attorney filed 7th back to the district court. Evidentiary hearings were held uh, February 27, 2012 through March 9, 2012. After those hearings, which again, swearing and bore the burden of proof, he had to bring forth the evidence that would lead a court to question whether his conviction was just legal or, or not. <clears throat> um, the state habeas writ was denied. The findings of fact, once again, show that Swearingen's not looking at the big picture the way the court is going to look at it the way the courts required by law to look at it but is looking at pieces you know they're looking at the two or three days where the temperature got above 70 for a few hours during the day and then went back down to 40 or 30 at night but they're just focusing on those few hours of 70 degree temperatures um and uh, and it was in this hearing uh, that they presented the affidavit, the twenty two thousand seven affidavit from Dr. Carter, which they presented as recanting all of her trial testimony and shortening the estimation of the postmortem interval from twenty five days to. 14 days, which completely exonerates Larry Swearingen. When um, Dr. Carter testified, however, some facts came out about that that affidavit or declaration. I can't remember which one it was. um, That don't really look very good to writing. And to this day, he still misrepresents the whole thing. She testified under oath that she spoke to writing, requested some changes, signed the affidavit before a notary, and returned it to him, expecting that the changes would be made. And the affidavit was submitted without the changes. Now, Dr. Carter did do writing a solid because if she had kept. If she'd handwritten her changes on the affidavit and kept a copy prior to returning it to writing, and the unaltered affidavit was filed, writing would be up on disciplinary charges. Right. In a hot minute. So, um, and that's—I mean—that's what I would have done. And then, if they they presented the affidavit to me without the changes, I would have brought that sucker out and been like, "Hey, this is what I agreed to say," and you and I have talked about that before. Right. A lot of attorneys—they make the mistake of writing the affidavit. In their language, in their words, in their way, and making it say what they need to say to support the client's position. And that's all well and good, but if you have a client or a witness who says, well, I this isn't right, that isn't right. You don't just leave it. You make whatever changes they want. Modify it in whatever way they want. And, you know, hope for the best. And, I
0: right.
1: you know, I've, I've read all the affidavits prepared by all of their experts. And I know James writing probably wrote every single one of those because they're not. In really medical, they have little nuances of legal, ease, so to speak. Um, so basically, the the state court judge had all these witnesses testifying and writing claims that Carter knuckled under the prosecution, but really, you know. The affidavit doesn't really recant her testimony. It narrows the postmortem interval to fourteen days, but that's because the affidavit talks about the internal organs, not the external observations that Dr. Carter made during the original autopsy. Um, so there are, I got pages and pages of notes from this one, uh, but basically. Um, the court found that Dr. Carter's trial testimony was well supported and it was not false uh, that she didn't testify to a precise range on time of death uh, that her testimony about fungi was reasonable expert medical opinion and was not false she didn't provide false testimony about the autopsy she performed or the cause and time of Melissa's death um, that Dr. Carter testified in good faith and did not knowingly offer false testimony at the trial, that the prosecutors also acted in good faith and had no reason to suspect or believe that any of Dr. Carter's testimony was false or misleading. And I feel this is important to talk about because Dr. Carter is basically being accused by a convicted murderer And his attorneys of lying on the stand, um, tailoring her testimony to support the state's case, and convicting a man she knows is innocent.
0: Uh
1: And in, in interviews, that was Larry Swearingen's exact position. That everybody in Montgomery County knows he's innocent. And the sheriff's office and the district attorney's office and the medical examiner all colluded against him and the, and the court all colluded against him. Poor, 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 poor little Larry. And sent him to death row for a crime they know he didn't commit. And, of course, you know that I find the words and protestations of convicted murderers to be about the last thing that I'll believe.
3: Right.
1: Um, you know, and Larry Swearingen is one of those people, as Judge Marilyn Million once said, I wouldn't believe him if his tongue came notarized. So, right. Um. The, the state court judge also had some not-so-nice things. He didn't find any of uh, Swearingen's expert witnesses to be credible. He found one, especially uh, a, an anthropology expert, to not only not be credible, but to be biased, because the uh, anthropologist had had Swearingen's counsel prepare and file an amicus brief on his behalf in the Fifth Circuit advocating for habeas relief for Swearingen. Um, There were a couple of other experts that were also found to be biased. I'm not going to mention names. Uh, They were found to be biased and to lack scientific detachment. Uh, So, um, also, it's very interesting that came out at one of the one of the uh, the 2012 hearings. There was a uh, young, a woman who's at the Southeast Texas Applied Forensic Science Facility who works at San, at a body farm, basically set up by Sam Houston University and they studied decomposition with donated cadavers near Huntsville in environment and climate similar to the Sam Houston National Forest Area. In November of 2011, they placed the body outdoors, and two weeks later they dissected the body, and they found that the hearth tissue was firm, not mushy, that photos of the body did not depict Decomposition, uh, and then I guess another body was left for 25 days, and that the photos did not depict more extensive decomposition after 25 days than what was observed with Melissa, and that you know decomposition, it's not, um, you know, it's not a a an automatic process. It doesn't occur the same way. In the same time frames for everyone. Right. Some people are going to decompose quickly, and some people are not. And it and there are so many variables: temperature, humidity, uh, health, general health of the person. All those factors can weigh into how and the rate that the body is going to decompose. And even, you know, I mean, we know from the West Memphis 3 case, rigor, liver, again, it's ranges. It, rigor takes about 24 hours to, to, to come start, set in, resolve. About 24 hours. But you might see it after 12. You might see it after 10. So, um, but basically, yeah, so swearing and none of, none of it, I mean, they have the big guns, and this is the forensic testimony that, or the forensic evidence or scientific evidence that they claim proves Larry Swearingen was absolutely innocent. And that's, just, that's not how the courts have seen any of this evidence. Michael
2: Yes ma'am, I'm here.
1: Oh. Okay, don't do that. <laughs> so, um so in uh December of twenty twelve the uh Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed denial of relief on the sixth and state seventh state applications and adopted the findings of the district court. Um, An execution date was set on December 13, 2012, which would be the fourth execution date, and that was set for uh, February 27, 2013. On January 17, 2013, the uh, swearing and filed a motion for DNA testing, I believe it was pro se, and then on January 24, 2013, the state also filed its own motion for DNA testing. And apparently, unlike Swearingen, they would have been able to get that DNA testing done. Uh, they were would have been able to get that DNA testing done prior to Swearingen's execution date where Swearingen needed a stay of execution. <coughs> On January 30th, 30th, the court denied that motion. Uh, the court also vacated Swearingen's execution date. Um, apparently, the, the judge was a new judge, and this one's really confusing because the judge at first denied Swearingen's DNA motion, then vacated two orders that I can't find on the record related to DNA testing. And then in June of 2013, granted uh, Swearingen's DNA motion. In uh, February 2014, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal basically reversed the DNA order based on law of the case doctrine, finding that the 2011 men- amendments, Chapter 64, had not affected the prior determinations regarding DNA testing for Swearingen. In uh, May of 2014, a fifth DNA motion was filed. Uh, an execution order was filed but never signed, and no date was set. And then in August, the court, again, granted DNA testing for swearing-in. And interestingly, and, and I'm going to be doing an interview that we will upload over the weekend or early next week with Kelly Buchanan, the, the Bureau trial bureau chief at the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office. And we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about the DNA testing saga in Larry Swearingen's case. Um, and one of the interesting things is it appears from my reading of that order that basically the judge signed the DNA testing order submitted by Swearingen's counsel because it adopts a lot of factual findings that weren't on the trial record and that are actually contradicted by prior summaries of the trial record in both state and federal court opinions. Um, In March of 2015, Swearingen filed a pro se motion to waive appeals and set his execution date, <clears throat> which he changed his mind, and on the 13th, he withdrew that motion. Um, in October of 2015, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal reversed the order, granting DNA testing, and um, again, basically found that swearing him was not entitled to testing because he did not meet the uh, requirement to Chapter 64 and uh, one of the other things that they, they found was that um, the court made speculative findings that were even more attenuated by assuming hypothetical confessions and false denials of contact stemming from hypothetical DNA matches um, they found that Swearingen could not establish by a preponderance of the evidence that he would not have been convicted if exculpatory results had been obtained through DNA testing. And we know that to be true because the blood flakes from the fingernail scrapings, which the jury knew about, they convicted him anyway. They knew that there was no other physical evidence aside from the cross matches of hairs and fibers. Uh putting him in contact with Melissa or Melissa in contact with his vehicle or his residence, but they still convicted him. Uh, there was a long dissent written by uh, Judge Elsa Alcala, um, which was interesting, but unfortunately don't have time to go into that. We may talk to, about that to with Mr. Buchanan. Um then in October, the U.S. Supreme Court denied swearing its writ of cert for the subsequent federal uh, – oh, no, no, sorry, for DNA testing because he went to the U.S. Supreme Court saying that the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals is violating my constitutional rights by not giving me DNA testing when I asked for it. Um, that's not what they really said, but you know they, they have an interesting argument, and the Supreme Court did not take it up. They tried again with Rodney Reed. The Supreme Court still has not taken it up. Um, then, of course, once that was denied, then they filed a civil rights claim regarding DNA testing in USDC USDC District Court. Uh, Western District Texas, and in that they named the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, the judges of the Court of Criminal Appeals, the DPS, the Sheriff, and the Montgomery County District Clerk. Um, they, uh, that was dismissed in July of 2017. Uh, basically, the district court found it had no jurisdiction over the state defendants that Swearingen's claims lacked any arguable basis in the law and should be dismissed as frivolous. The court also found that Swearingen failed to state a claim upon which relief could be granted because he couldn't show that Chapter 64 was inadequate to protect his right to seek post-conviction DNA testing, that relief could not be granted even if his allegations were true, and that there was no failure of the state's procedures. So, um, that was it. Um, swearing and filed an alt, motion to alter or amend in April. Um, his execution, though, was set on, I mean, August 4th. On August 10th, his execution date, his fifth execution date, was set for November 16th, 2017. Um it was about this time, or maybe a little earlier in July, that um, Larry Swearingen decided to go to Anthony Shore to tell Anthony Shore, "I think you're the one who killed Melissa Trotter. You need to take responsibility. So I'm going to draw you a map, and it's going to show you where Melissa's body was, and it's going to show you where I threw away, where I mean, I'm, where you threw away her backpack." And you just need to take this to the authorities, and you need to confess to Melissa's murder and get my butt off death row. Um, initially, because Swearingen and Shore were buddies, Shore was kind of okay with this. He was already on death row. He would already confessed. He was going to be executed. Why not, you know, do Larry a solid? Um, so he apparently was visiting with someone or talking on the phone to someone, and he tells her, hey, that woman in Montgomery County, I did her. And, of course, the visitor then reports the admission. Um, I wonder if the visitor also knew Larry Swearingen, because wouldn't that be convenient? Um, so that started the ball rolling. The There was a, a search of share of Of uh, Shore's cell in July and the materials provided to him to make his confession accurate by Larry Swearingen were found in his cell. So Harris County informed Montgomery County DA, DA of that. The DA sought a reprieve of 30 days from the governor for Anthony Shore in order to develop more information about this plot. Uh, interestingly enough, when you see Riding and Benjet talking about it, they act as though it was nothing and that Shore really was the real killer. And, you know, once again, they ignore is Shore is the real killer and Shore and, you know, I mean, Swearingen says he believes Shore is the real killer. Why does Swearingen have to tell him anything about anything?
3: Right.
1: Why does he have to tell him where Melissa's body was? Why does he have to tell him where he got rid of the backpack? Which you remember hearing about searching a lake? Yeah. Around November of 2017? That was because on that drawing, Swearingen put where he had thrown Melissa's backpack. To me, that whole thing is very significant. I don't care if Larry Swearingen says, I believe you're the real killer. You know, he drew a map. And, of course, every lie that, that Swearingen tells, he can justify. Um you know the the he he he's telling people he's in trouble because he's in a stolen truck. Um, you know he and Melissa were dating. <clears throat> the the letter he wanted his attorneys to do their jobs and hire an investigator, and they wouldn't do that, so he wrote that fake letter. You know, I mean it, it's kind of pathological. Um so the whole, the, about this time in October, uh, they discovered that what happened, we talked about it, what ended, what happened with the fifth execution date was that the clerk sent out all the notices, but somehow, for some reason, and I don't think they even know exactly what happened, the office of capital writ. Was not notified. And even though swearing is represented by counsel, the law requires or the procedure requires that the Office of Capital Writs also be notified. And I guess that's in the event that retained counsel or appointed counsel is unable to assist with getting a stay of execution or. Pursuing whatever you know claims uh they might want to pursue, so on the thirtieth of October, the fifth execution date was withdrawn then uh a motion to alter amend had been filed on the d n a lawsuit, and that was denied by the district court on November ninth of twenty seventeen and mm-hmm. I think we spoke about this before, and I, I totally believe that the collusion with Shore and the attempt to get Shore to take responsibility for um, uh, for Melissa's murder is what led to the Montgomery County DA and Benjet and writing to agree – to DNA testing. Okay. Even though, again, Swearingen did not meet any of the criteria on the statute. On some of the things he wanted to test, he could not prove that there was biological material. Um, And, like I said, not finding his DNA is not necessarily going to be exculpatory. So especially when you're talking about doing touch DNA on clothing and the pantyhose and things like that, because in 1998, touch DNA was not envisioned. And so evidence handling procedures were not as stringent as they are today, where you handle everything all the time, Wearing gloves. Um, so in December there was an agreed order to release evidence for testing. Um, Swearingen had initially appealed the USDC uh, denial of the civil rights claim to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal. Um, in January of 2018, he filed a motion to stay. And um, the Fifth Circuit denied that, so then he filed a voluntary dismissal of that appeal because it was moot. On um, the 7th of January 2019, or around there, Bode Technology reported that they had not been able to develop DNA profile, or they had not, let's see, they had not detected sufficient DNA on any of the evidence from which a DNA profile could be developed. More, more likely than not, I'm going to guess is that there really weren't any biological materials remaining on the evidence after 25 days as far as the ligature, the clothing. Um, they also, con- but they did confirm that the cigarette butts found near Melissa's body were from the hunters who found her. Right. You still there, Michael? Okay.
2: I'm still here. And um,
1: while while they while they didn't find Larry Swaringen's DNA, they didn't find anybody's DNA. They didn't find unknown DNA. They didn't find Melissa's DNA. I think they might have found DNA on the pantyhose half from swearing in the trailer pantyhose, but I'm not positive about that. So, <clears throat> and uh, you know how do how do the police plant something and plant your wife's pubic hairs, your hair? and then your DNA.
0: Because they're still... (laughs) And
1: so, (laughs) on March 12, 2019, the sixth execution date was set for August twenty fourth, 2019. Now, additionally, something I didn't mention, Shore actually left an affidavit that said that he did not have anything to do with Melissa Trotter's murder, knew nothing about it. Um, So, the the execution date is set in March but it isn't until June that uh, Swearingen files a request for funding from the federal court to pursue <coughs> a subsequent state uh, post-conviction rent. Uh, also in 2018, um, <clears throat> swearingen's attorneys sent letter to d p s seeking correction of certain testimony um they did this in Rodney Reed's case too um, They then went to federal court seeking funding to pursue um, state writ related to the cell phone evidence, which they mentioned pursuing in February and March. And to also pursue, excuse me, a second claim related to the pantyhose. I think uh, the match on the pantyhose. The federal court essentially uh, said that federal funding does not apply to state post-conviction writs. So. The request for funding was denied, and the request was dismissed without prejudice. Um, The court noted that if situations changed, swearing could apply again. Then uh, there was also about the same time, the week before his execution, swearing in files, a request with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal for a third federal habeas writ. And a request with the um, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, he actually filed a writ in the trial court, which was forwarded to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, for a ninth writ of habeas corpus, which would have been his 14th overall writ because he filed multiple pro se writs of mandamus that were all denied. Um, The uh, court had some really, really, really uh, strong words about this late filing. I mean, this could have been filed, um, gosh, it could have been filed in, I don't know, 2017 while the DNA testing was pending or 2018 while the DNA testing was pending. Um, It doesn't really go into what the issues are. I think some of them dealt with the false claims regarding the pantyhose, uh, regarding the contamination of the the fingernail scrapings, and the cell phone data. Um, Basically, there were 10 claims, including actual innocence and attacking scientific validity of different evidence presented at trial, um, which could have all been done in his first writ. Or his second writ. And these could have been investigated because the same attorneys have represented him since 2003, with the exception of Bryce Benjak coming on on the DNA issues. Um, So the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals on August 16th denied the request for a ninth state writ. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals also denied a request for a third federal writ, um, and so um, again, they they cited that swearing in his father, convoluted tangle of habeas applications, pro se motions, mandamus actions, and amended pleadings, all seeking to overturn his conviction and postpone his death sentence. Um, this is Sixteen years since his direct Rise. appeal I mean, concluded, and you know he's filed nine state habeas corpus writs, raising you know raising quote new evidence that wasn't really new, um, sometimes using the same experts. With more definitive opinions than they had the last time around, attacking the postmortem interval, attacking Dr. Carter's autopsy findings, attacking her external findings, um you know going on the histology, the entomology i you know I think he had two writs of entomology evidence
0: <clears throat>
1: you know the first one didn't cut it, so he got more um, experts who were more definitive in saying, yes, yes, definitely. She could not have been left there before December 18th. But then when they testify at the hearing and they're cross-examined by the state, it all kind of falls apart. And that's another thing that that people who are claiming Swearingen was innocent have not read any of these opinions and seeing why the claims were not accepted and why he was not given a new trial. He wasn't given a new trial because the justice system is unfair. He was given a new, not given a new trial because he never showed that his conviction was the result of constitutional error or that he was actually innocent. Or that a different outcome would have resulted had the alleged new evidence been presented. Right. And the Federal Fifth Circuit denied his request for a third writ. And, um, you know, basically, once again, they kind of found that, you know, he's raising these claims and he was misrepresenting what the DPS said about the testimony. It wasn't a recantation. It wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a, a positive statement that the testimony was false. Um, basically the first letter, this is related to the contamination. Um, the dps found while this witness was qualified to answer questions concerning the possibility for contamination within the dps laboratory or based on the packaging and conditioning condition of the evidence she had no direct knowledge about how the evidence in question was collected or stored prior to its submission to dps because of this a more appropriate answer would have been that she could not speak to the possibility of contamination of the samples when they were outside the control of the DPS laboratory. I mean, you know, she should have answered the questions differently.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: But it's not saying she lied, it was false. Right. You know, there's a second paragraph, but, I mean, the Fifth Circuit felt so strongly about the misrepresentation that they actually published both letters as an appendix. Um, The second letter is even more egregious because in the second paragraph, the DPS laboratory says, after a review of the case records, I do not believe that the expert's testimony Constitutes professional negligence or professional misconduct, and thus do not see a basis for the CLIME lab to report this matter to the Texas Forensic Science Commission uh, pursuant to the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure. Um, in the one issue, uh, the Witness did not directly associate the fibers with any particular piece of evidence. In fact, in one instance, she corrected the attorney who used the term cross-matching, and she uh, corrected him to indicate the correct terminology of similar. Uh, The uh, second issue, the terms unique and to the exclusion of others – were common language throughout the forensic community at the time in regard to physical match- matches and footwear tie comparisons when accidental characteristics were located. <clears throat> today, we will report that the two pieces were once joined but not would, would not include the statement to the exclusion of all others. So today, we wouldn't say... You know the again the terminology would be different, but there's no there's no it's a difference without a a distinction without a difference because the different phrasing does not diminish the fact that the ligature used to strangle Melissa and the pantyhose found from Swearingen's trailer with his wife's DNA and his mitochondrial DNA, were once joined. Right.
3: Um,
1: And then finally, uh, the last two gasps were a civil rights claim uh, raising a challenge to the lethal injection drugs used by Texas. That was quickly dismissed. Um, It was dismissed on August 20th, the day before Swearingen's execution. It should have been filed probably two years earlier when the execution protocol was uh, adopted by the state of Texas. And then finally, the last ditch was on Wednesday, August 21st. Swearingen's attorneys filed a writ of habeas corpus directly with the U.S. Supreme Court. While that is a potential, it is very, very rarely done, very, really, rarely taken, very rarely taken. So right. Um, at right before 6 o'clock p.m. on Wednesday, the U.S. Supreme Court denied the request for stay of execution and denied the request for a uh, writ of habeas corpus declined to review and so Swearingen's execution went forward uh, as scheduled um, he was brought in about 6 15 630 it may have taken a little while to get notice from the Supreme Court Um, He had the IVs put in his arms. Um, Nobody was there from his family. Uh, He was attended by a priest. Melissa Trotter's family was there. Uh, Victim services people were there with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Swearing in quoted Jesus, which is Beyond insulting to me. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Those were his last words. Uh, He released some sort of statement. He had given interviews to Washington Post and a couple of podcasts um, Mm -hmm. where he lied through his teeth. And um, he would not open his eyes and look at Mrs. Trotter. The coward kept his eyes closed and refused to look at Mrs. Trotter right Um, Mrs. Trotter and her husband and their family have suffered and mourned for 19 years actually 21 years because it was 1998 when Melissa was killed um and for 19 years, they've waited for justice for Melissa, and they've seen five execution dates scheduled and then put off at the last minute, and finally they got justice.
0: Sure. Um,
1: swearing, and I think, is trying to set up some kind of uh, uh, claim for the next guy who goes to the death house. Um, He claimed that he could hear the drug entering his veins and that one arm burned, and I think he said he could taste it. And then Mm -hmm. um, I think that he was pronounced dead at 6.47 p.m. I think the process took about 12 minutes. Okay. And he lost consciousness any, right after that.
2: Any uh anybody make any comments about possibly some issues or anything?
1: No. No. Okay. Like I said, it took twelve so, minutes. He said he made these, you know, he made these anecdotal um statements. I guess he's trying to help, you know, the next guy, Billy Kretzinger who's mm-hmm. probably going to file a lethal injection challenge and say, well, when they executed Larry Swearingen, he said his arm burned. Right. So I hope the log, it turns out, he said his right arm burned, but he didn't feel anything left. I hope he had saline going in the right arm and that the drug was going in the left arm. Right. Cause he, and, you know, and, and actually – that's really not a big deal. There are some drugs that when either whether you get a mus- intramuscular or intravenous, they burn mm-hmm. they sting, they hurt right i I've had a couple um, uh what was it uh I had one I think it was like Cenogra I had to have an intramuscular injection, and the lady's like, "I'm sorry, baby, this is gonna burn." This is gonna hurt. (laughs) But you'll quit throwing up. Right. So but no, I mean I don't see how anybody can say he didn't have due process. No, he didn't win. He wasn't successful. He wasn't granted a new trial. Yeah. But that's because the the courts we're not going to just look at his evidence and the testimony from his witnesses and the conclusory allegations of his attorneys they were going to look the courts were going to look at that and then you know they have to balance and weigh it with the evidence as a whole right And that's what they did. And, you know, part of the problem I have is they keep saying we proved him innocent multiple times. Well, no court agrees with that statement. And you're an attorney. You may not agree with the court, but to misrepresent what the courts have found in that way is insulting. I mean, they would file motions to amend. Um, They filed the motion to amend in federal court telling the judge, you did it wrong. (laughs) You know, you made factual errors and you didn't understand the law. Right. So, um, but no, I mean, you know, you have to look at the big picture. You can't focus on a couple of twigs and ignore the veritable mountain of inculpatory evidence. And that's what in his attorneys, his advocates, his supporters have consistently done. True. And so, you know, like I said, it's not unfair because you don't win. It's not unfair because right. you don't get the relief you feel you're entitled to. Absolutely. Um, It's just you did not present the evidence that would entitle you to be, to get a new trial. Right. Or to get DNA testing.
2: Right. Well, Lisa, before we get cut off...
1: I want to throw a bow on this sucker, yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. i'm gonna I'm gonna go through um, thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook, go to our blog at clear com, or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien l. Ann. We'll be back to our regular schedule next week. So please join us on Tuesday, September 3rd, 2019, at 8 o'clock p.m. Central, for Episode 27, Post-Conviction DNA Testing. Michael and I will talk about several state post-conviction DNA testing statutes, including Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, California, and New York. We'll discuss the requirements a convicted person must meet to be entitled to testing, and why some high-profile cases over the past decade have had testing requests denied. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.